And we're continuing today in our series through the book of Mark. And we're continuing to look at the life of Jesus as he comes into this broken world and as he looks to welcome the kingdom of God. Um, So we're going to read together from the book of Mark, chapter 5, and it's from verse 21 to 43. And I have to apologize that it's come up so small on the screen. I'm sure I did it wider, but I think it's reformatted, and I'm sorry about that. But hopefully you've got a Bible with you, or if you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles on the end of the row if you want to grab one to follow along. So Mark 5, starting from verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered round him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. And John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. Okay, so here we have two stories for the price of one. Um, We see again, Mark has this technique that he continues to use throughout the book of Mark, um, something called a Mark and Sandwich. I know I've maybe spoken about that before, but this is the idea that you start one story and then bring in another story and then return to the other story. And the point of that technique is actually linking these stories together. So Mark's looking to highlight the fact that these two stories have something in common, um, and, and he wants the reader to see that. So at first glance, let's just highlight a few connections. The first is that they're both women. Both of these stories are about women, this woman and this little girl. And this is in a culture that didn't really value, didn't put a lot of value on women. They weren't seen as important. In fact, they were often treated as second-class citizens. 
Secondly, both these women are connected by the number 12. So the woman who had been suffering with bleeding, it says in verse 25, for 12 years. And the little girl was 12 years old. Again, another link. And actually a significant number in the Bible, the number 12, often representing the people of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. So another connection point between these two stories. Also, on the surface, both stories appear to be hopeless situations. The woman with the issue of blood had literally tried and spent everything she had on trying to be healed. In other words, she tried everything that was humanly possible. And for the little girl, she dies. She's dead. You know, the, the, the servant comes and says, why bother the teacher anymore? In other words, it's hopeless. So both hopeless situations, but both receive a life-transforming miracle. And as we said already, this is, this is part of Jesus as he's continuing on his mission to teach about the kingdom of God. He wants to show the world what the kingdom of God is like. He's trying to represent to people um, the kingdom of God and just reveal who God is and his heart for humanity. So what is Jesus modeling in this passage? In, in other words, what is Jesus, does Jesus have to offer the world? And I want to pick out a few things out of this passage. The first one is compassion. You know, time and time again throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus was moved by compassion. And this is such an important core value of the kingdom of God. Love and compassion for everyone, especially those that the world wouldn't think to look twice at. You know, that is the story of these two women, that Jesus saw them. Do you know that the original word for compassion is not actually found in classic Greek? Do you know, it's actually a word that was made up by the evangelists themselves to try and express what, what Jesus truly meant. So we can't find this word in the ancient Greek. And actually, this word, is, it's an expressive word. It's an expression of deep emotion. Um, something I read said it was like, a, it was like a, str a straining of the bowels, like it's this deep emotion, a yearning of our innermost nature with pity. But it also means motivated to help motivated to do something into that situation. See, I want to suggest that there's a difference between compassion and sympathy. You know, sympathy is the harmony or it's coming into agreement of a feeling between uh, people with respect to another, another person. So sympathy is like agreeing with someone. But compassion, although maybe a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another person, it's also accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate that person's suffering. And, you know, when we feel sympathy for someone, we kind of align ourselves with the hopelessness of that situation. And all that we can really do when we feel sympathy for someone is say, I feel bad for you. I understand how you're feeling and, and, and I feel bad. And while it's great for us to be able to get sympathy and it's nice to know that people understand where we're at when we're in our place of suffering, Sympathy actually doesn't bring change to a situation. You know, is that the best that we can offer? And the sad thing is that often I think the world thinks that that is the best there is on offer. You know, so many people are stuck in situations of loneliness and rejection and isolation and sickness. And the best they think is that was on offer is for people to take pity on them and to feel sorry for them. But compassion comes from God and actually moves us to take authority over a situation and move in, in such a way that we're actually looking to bring change into that situation. Compassion is actually revealed through action. And we see that here. We see that in the way that Jesus responds 
um, in these two instances. So first of all, we meet Jairus. He's a synagogue leader, and in many ways, Jairus, he kind of represents the old covenant, the, the law. He was a student of the law, and we've already been introduced to the fact through Mark that um, the, the leaders of the law, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like his teaching. He was challenging the way that they thought and they're taught, and he was challenging their rules and their authority, their ways of thinking, and Jairus would have been well aware of the views of his colleagues. But in the background, his daughter was sick. And he had heard about the miracles of Jesus. And he can't help but think, I wonder if maybe, just maybe, Jesus would be able to bring power to heal my little girl. You know, he didn't care what the crowds thought. You know, he falls at his feet before Jesus in full view of the crowds. And he doesn't care what they think as he pleads earnestly with Jesus to come and lay hands on his daughter and heal her. And Jesus agrees, moved by compassion. Why do I think this was a compassionate, compassionate act? Because he goes. Because he literally is moved by the plea of a desperate dad. You know, his day was probably heading in a different direction, but he literally changes direction to go with Jairus to his house um, to, to heal his daughter. And when Jesus arrives at the house, if we skip forward to the end of the passage, what is he confronted with? A commotion. You know, people crying and wailing loudly. So in this culture, people were actually hired. People were actually um, brought in as professional mourners. And the idea behind this was so that the family would be able to express their emotions, their true emotions of sorrow and, and grief, without feeling embarrassed. Um, so people would come around. And, and so what are these people doing? They're actually sympathizing with the emotions of the family. They're sympathizing with the family. They're aligning themselves with the grief and the suffering that the family was experiencing. So what does Jesus do when he gets there? If you look at verse 40, it says he put them out. He put them all out. And he doesn't let anyone follow him in. Peter, James, John, and the girl's parents. Why did he do that? He kicked out all the sympathizers because sympathy doesn't heal people. Sympathy is good, but it's not where we stay, and it's definitely not where we minister from. Compassion moves with authority to bring change in a situation. That's the kingdom of God. It's not hopeless. It's not helpless. And, the full, and it's full of power to change the most apparently hopeless situation. And that's the compassion that Jesus shows. Again, he shows compassion to this woman. He's interruptible. You know, again, this time it literally stops him in his tracks. He's on his way to Jairus' house and he feels this touch. And in that moment, he stops and he turns. And that is a compassionate act. You know, this woman was desperate. We already know in this culture, in this context, she was seen as second class. And when she touches Jesus, I can't help but think that in that moment, Jesus had a word of knowledge about this woman and who she was. A revelation about this woman that actually caused him to stop. He knew power had gone out of him. You know, are we compassionate people? I felt really challenged by this as I was reading over this passage. You know, do we allow the compassion of God to flow through us in our day-to-day -day lives? You know, compassion literally causes Jesus to alter the course of his day. He was interruptible as he moved in obedience and compassion for people and the brokenness that they lived in. He put their needs before his own. 
You know, Jesus, he didn't just look to do miracles for the crowds. He wasn't just trying to win favor with the crowds. You know, he performed miracles because he first allowed himself to experience compassion for these people. He performed miracles out of a place of love, not trying to show off. You know, I desperately want to see miracles. I want to see healings like this. I want to see people literally supernaturally cured from sickness and disease. But I feel challenged by that passage. Am I ready to love people the way that Jesus taught us to love people? And I think that that kind of love only comes from God. You know, that kind of love didn't exist before Jesus came. They had to make up a whole new word for it. You know, compassion literally comes from God. And it comes through praying for it. And it comes through asking God, break my heart with the things that break yours. Teach me to love people like you love them. Teach me to see people like you see them. So Jesus offers the world compassion and the potential to bring change in hopeless situations. Next, the second thing that Jesus offers the world is the power to heal. I don't know if any of you have been, I'm sure lots of us have, in a place of sickness, but um, a few years ago I was in a lot of pain and I had this um, little lump coming up under my tongue and uh, over a few, the course of a few days it just got bigger and bigger and sore and sore. And it got to the point where I wasn't able to eat, I wasn't able to swallow, like I wasn't even able to think about food um, without this, this, this pain in my mouth that was just being really, really bad. And um, I'm not someone who likes to take six days and I was um, in uni on placement and I was on one of the, the ward rounds and, and these tears were literally just starting to form in my eyes because I was in so much pain and I suddenly realised I needed to go and, and get something done about this. So I went and I got an emergency appointment with the GP, but there was still such a long wait. I just remember being in the waiting room and I remember looking at the floor and just wanting to like writhe around in the floor in pain, like no painkillers were touching this thing. And eventually I got seen by the GP, but she couldn't help me. And I had to wait again while she referred me back up to the hospital to go and see the specialist. And again, another wait, and there were these horrible, like really uncomfy plastic chairs, and there was no position that I could get in that could like relieve this pain. Again, they tried to give me painkillers, but it just wasn't helping, and literally, I was wanting to fall to the floor in pain. And then the junior doctor came out to see me and took me into the, the room, and he had a look in my mouth, and he managed to diagnose the fact that I had um, some stones blocking my salivary duct. And um, so every time I thought about food, that this would that would kind of swell up and it was just really really painful so he thought he tried to help me by squeezing this stone out now if I thought I was in pain before this I was wrong I mean that was pain like I have never known pain and I screamed at him as he tried to like push this stone like I, it just wasn't working so back to the waiting room I went uh, to, to wait for the, the surgical registrar who had to come and he numbed up my mouth with a needle that was by the way about this big and then um, finally I had relief and then he came and he cut into my mouth and out came not one, not two, but six small stones um, followed by a little flow of pus that had managed to build up behind that. But an instant, in an instant I was relieved, in an instant the pain was gone and I was ecstatic. Now I can only imagine the desperation of this poor woman who had been suffering for 12 long years with the issue of blood. Now she would have been in pain. She had literally tried everything. That's how desperate she was. She had made herself bankrupt trying to find every possible cure. And it had made her worse, not better. And she'd also become a social outcast because under the Jewish law due to the issue of blood, she was seen as unclean. 
and as a result, anyone that she made contact with would have also been seen as unclean. So you can picture the scene. A desperate lady, she sees the crowd surrounding Jesus, and now it's her chance. And using the crowd for cover and, and maybe hoping that no one would recognize her, she presses forward with all the hope and all the faith that she can muster to see if she can make contact with Jesus. She reaches out to touch Jesus. And immediately her bleeding stops. She knows in an instant that she was healed. Can you imagine the relief after 12 years? Can you imagine the emotion that she was feeling? And then Jesus stops. He stops the crowd and turns and says, Who touched me? The woman is suddenly afraid. I can't help but wonder what interactions she's had in the past with teachers of the law. What they've said to her about her issue of blood. How they've warned her, don't touch anyone, you'll make them unclean. The way they probably spoke to her with no value, no honour. She was unimportant, she was unclean. Is it any wonder that she fell with fear and trembling at the feet of Jesus? She'd broken the rules. She'd touched the teacher. She'd made him unclean under the old law. But what is Jesus' response to her? If we look at that. What does he say to her? He says, daughter. <laughs> Love that. Daughter. Daughter. What he's effectively saying is women of worth, men of value. I see you and your faith has healed you. And there was a reason that Jesus stopped the crowd. Because he wanted to highlight to everyone what had been done in this woman. He wanted to, her to be able to move from a place of social isolation back into acceptance and back into community. And so he stops the crowd and he makes the crowd witness to the incredible miracle of healing um, in her life. And she can move from being the social outcast and she gets to join in and become one of this growing, growing sort of body of community and of followers of Jesus. You know, her faith healed her, but then Jesus turns and he restores her and sets her free from her social prison. You know, if we look at the original Greek um, for the word healed here, it is, it's from the, the word sozo. Many of us probably know what that means, but sozo is to be made alive and to be made healthy. And it's such a rich word. It's healing not only for our body, but for our mind and our soul as well. It's a salvation that affects every part of who we are. And that is what we see Jesus do in this instant. He doesn't just heal her, but he redeems her and he restores her and he brings her back into community. You know, Jesus cares about all of us, doesn't he? That which was unclean, he makes clean. You know, under the old covenant, if you touch someone, they become unclean. But under the new covenant, when Jesus touches you, you become clean. I love that. So the kingdom of God is more than just healing. It's also about restoration. It's about the whole person. And here we see Jesus demonstrating his authority over sickness. Sickness, no match for the kingdom of God. Another theme that links these two stories is the presence of faith in both of these stories. For the woman, Jesus wants her to know that it's her faith that healed her. He stopped to tell her that. It was your faith that made you well. You know, he, he wanted to dispel any kind of myths. This wasn't some magical, superstitious act as she touched the holy man. You know, this was her faith. It was literally in response to her faith that she was healed. And similarly, faith is an important part of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter. You know, poor Jairus, you can only imagine as all this is going on how much more desperate he's becoming as he knows that life is gradually slipping away from his daughter. And then his servant comes with the news, don't bother the teacher anymore. 
she said. But Jesus turns to him, and I can just, I like to imagine this. I'm sure I could see Jesus just putting his hand on his shoulder, just looking him right in the eye and saying, don't be afraid, just believe. And hope and faith begin to return. Hope and faith begin to arise. You know, faith comes as we encounter the presence of Jesus. You know, Jairus' situation to the world seems hopeless. But as Jesus spoke into the situation, faith is rising. And you can imagine the mixed emotions of despair and grief for Jairus. He's just found out that his daughter's dead. But also that all his hope in this moment is placed in Jesus. And Jesus goes to the room of the 12-year-old girl. He leaves the crowd behind. He leaves the crowd who laughed when he told them that she was just sleeping. You know, they don't have faith, so they don't get to see. They don't get to be in on this. And he goes into the room of the 12-year-old girl with just a few of his disciples and the mom and dad. And he takes her by the hand. Again, breaking the rules. She's dead. She's unclean. But he touches her. He takes her by the hand. And he speaks to her those words, Talitha Kim, little girl, I say to you, get up. What a beautiful picture of just intimacy and love. And then what happened? She did. She got up. Because Jesus has authority even over death. Demonstrating that there is no earthly power that can stand against the kingdom of God. Not even death. And he says, get her something to eat. You know, he cares about her needs. He cares about what she needs next. This is such a personal, private miracle. Such a personal, private salvation. He cares about this little 12-year-old girl. You know, and in the same way, he cares about us. He cares about each of us individually and what we need, what we personally need. And he wants to come and speak into our lives. You know, we are all his children. Okay, so power to heal. Finally, the thing that Jesus has to offer the world is the possibility of living life to the full, fullness of life. So we have two women, two broken, hurt, dying, sick women, and two encounters that quite literally changed their lives and moved them from suffering and sickness into full health and full wholeness. You know, and we live, as I said already, in this broken, hurting, hungry world where people desperately need to know what it's like to receive a touch of Jesus in their lives. John 10.10 says that the enemy comes to rob, kill, and destroy. But I have come so that you may have life and life to the full. I think that's the reality of today's story as we look at this. These two women are afflicted by sickness and disease. That is not God's will. You know, I believe that comes from the enemy. Sickness and disease comes from the enemy. And Jesus wants to bring healing into that. It's not his intention for us to suffer like that. And often people, they ask so much when you speak about your faith, why is there so much suffering in the world? But I think the Bible answers that. And it's because there is an enemy whose plans and purposes are about causing us to suffer um, and stopping us living in the fullness of God because of his jealousy and hatred for us. But that's not the end of the story. And Jesus comes to rescue us from the enemy and to break his power over our lives to allow us to be able to live in fullness of life. In his presence, there is healing and there is freedom. And there's so much that we could say on on that kind of subject, but I just want to... I just want to keep focusing on this passage. And I just want to briefly highlight two principles that I see modeled in this passage that are about um, pursuing this access to that fullness of life, for both for us, but also for others. And the first thing is about personal persistence. So first, the story of the woman who takes matters into her own hands. 
You know, her desperation leads her to pursue Jesus. It propels her to push through the crowds in order to touch her healer. You know, in, in that passage, it talks about how the crowds pressed in around Jesus. You know, it would have been challenging to get through those crowds. It would have been challenging to get close to Jesus. But she persisted. She persisted and she pushed through. For some of us here today, maybe we feel in our lives that we're not living in that complete freedom. We know that there are things in our lives that are weighing us down and, and stopping living, us, living life to the full. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's ways that we think about ourselves or see ourselves. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's addiction. The truth is, if we were to go around this room, we all have our stuff. We all have our stuff. But whatever it is, Jesus has the power to set us free. But we have to make the choice to pursue that freedom. We need to make that choice to push into his presence in order to seek that healing. The woman pushed through the crowds. She shouldn't have been there. She shouldn't have been touching the crowds. But she persisted anyway. And often I think the enemy looks to put obstacles in the way of us coming into the presence of Jesus because he knows that that's a place that leads to freedom and transformation. And there can be many things that are obstacles. But one of them, when we particularly talk about the work of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit, often within the church, one of the biggest obstacles is fear. It's fear of the power of the Spirit. It's fear of, of what that looks like. It's fear of the unknown. It's fear of not having experienced that before. You know, what if the woman had allowed fear of the crowd to stop her from touching Jesus? She wouldn't have received her miracle. Now, we all know what a scarecrow is, right? So a scarecrow, the purpose of a scarecrow is to sit in a field and it's to scare the crows away so that they don't come and eat the, cro the crops. But scarecrows only work because the crows aren't very bright. Because actually, if they were, they'd soon figure out that they don't be afraid of a stuffed, lifeless, and harmless scarecrow, but that actually the presence of a scarecrow is a sign that there's a fruitful field around it. You know, I can't help but feel like sometimes it's like that in God. The enemy wants to put fear in areas where God often has the biggest harvest for us. You know, he wants to chase us away from the areas that God's calling us to be fruitful. So we need to examine our lives and ask ourselves, where am I experiencing fear? And how do I overcome this obstacle to get myself into God's presence and receive his healing touch in my life and be able to start living life to the full? We need to be persistent in getting ourselves into God's presence. He wants to bring healing. He wants to bring restoration. He wants us to live in fullness of life. You know, I really believe that. So we need to be persistent. The second thing, as we look at Jairus, um, so the first thing was about personal persistence, but secondly, intercession. You know, we see here a father whose love for his daughter literally pushes him to his knees in complete surrender as he petitions Jesus on behalf of his daughter. You know, that's what Jairus was doing. He was interceding for his daughter. She was too unwell to come to Jesus. She couldn't come to Jesus herself. So Jairus went on her behalf. And we spoke about intercession a little bit in our last pursuit and about how intercession is the act of intervening on behalf of another. And I wonder as we look at the world around us, as our families, our friends, our work colleagues who don't know Jesus, to ask ourselves the question, who is going to petition Jesus on their behalf? 
at the leadership conference a few weeks ago, there was a speaker called Mark Green, uh, and he was specifically teaching about faith in the workplace, and it was a great talk. But there was one story in particular that he told that really struck me. And that was the story of a teacher who, when he was in the classroom, when the kids used to be working, he would walk around the classroom and he would pray over each child. And there was one particular time he was praying over a boy, and as he prayed about him to the Lord, he felt the, the Spirit say to him, no one has ever lifted this child to me in prayer. And that just really struck me. As I began to think about people in my life, and I began to think, are there people that I know in my life who have never been lifted to Jesus? who have never been prayed for. So we need to be out there as we pray to God, representing them before God, interceding, partnering with what God wants to do. You know, intercession is easy when we just partner with what God wants to do anyway, right? Like God wants to bring salvation. He wants to bring healing into the lives of our family and our friends and our colleagues. You know, he wants to do that. And intercession is a privilege as we just get to partner with what he wants to do. So we need to petition God on their behalf. But actually, we have also, if we flip this around, what chance do our friends and family and colleagues have if there's no one out there to truly represent who God is to them? Because actually, so many people in the world are so misinformed as to the truth of who God is. They think he's angry at the world, that he sends judgment, that he causes suffering. But as we look at, at Jesus' ministry, we see that he is presenting a different message. You know, he's representing the gospel message. He's representing the truth of the kingdom of God. And that is that God is loving, that he's compassionate, that he wants to heal us, that he wants to set us free, that he wants to, us to live life to the full, that he wants the best for us. And the world needs to know that. And then he wants to empower us. He, God wants to empower us to go with that message. Yeah. So we started this morning about talking about superheroes. And maybe our fascination for superheroes comes from a place of knowing as a culture, knowing as a society, knowing as a world that we are in need of rescue. But maybe it also comes from a place of that, that childlike desire uh, you know, that we probably all had when we were children to want to be great and want to be brave and want to, be, want to help people. Um, that actually as God first rescues us, he wants to use us to then go and do the same for others. He wants us to be bold and courageous and adventurous and filled with the power and filled with the spirit of God for the sake of, of the world. <laughs> that people might be rescued, they might be restored, redeemed, set free. Free to live life to the full. Life to the full knowing him, knowing Jesus. So Jesus models to us compassion, kingdom power to heal and restore. And he gives us an invitation to live life to the full. Amen. Why don't we stand together?